and welcome to Killer Serials. This is Tony Jones. Hey, this is Ryan Parker. And we are a couple dudes who talk about awesome television. So good. We have impeccable television taste, don't we, Tony? Oh, my gosh. I mean, we really rectify 207, man. If we were going to pick a show that we're going to watch 30... I don't know that I've ever watched a show for 30 straight weeks. You know? I mean, maybe back... Cheers. Even back in the day... I'm watching Cheers. I'm watching an episode this, of Cheers every night before I go to bed now. I'm on season four. When I was in seminary in Los Angeles in the early 90s, I lived in a house with some other guys, and a group of people Real came world. over every Thursday night. LA Real Law. World. LA Law. No. LA Law, we watched every <laughs> Thursday night, dude. Wow. You were like in middle school at the time, but no, I was. I was, in, I, was, I, was in grad, in, I was in grad school watching LA. Law. I was in. I was in junior high. I'm sure. <laughs> Probably watching Friends. I watched some Friends too, but we were real into LA Law. Okay, uh, two oh seven rectify. Is it the episode that we've all been waiting for, and we didn't know we were waiting for it? Well, I mean, it's funny. Not to jump the gun, we might as well jump right to it. It's the the closing scene, basically. The scene that takes up about, I don't know, the last 20% of the episode, which is really, it's it's an incredible scene because it's Daniel and it's Trey, and they are completely high, stoned, drunk, taking uppers, taking downers. They're like effed up, okay? So much so that it was interesting how it was shot out of focus. You know, did you notice that? That the the edges of the lens were out of focus to try to give it that kind of out of control, not fully sober feeling. And they have this extremely long extended... I mean, it's like a conversation, it's an argument, it's a fight, because all you want as a viewer is to know what happened on the night that Hannah died. And we find out some parts, like we find out... We get a lot. I mean, Trey gives us so many... Well, no, Trey gives us so many possibilities of what happened that night. And you still, which I think is a central theme so far in the series... We can't be sure which is correct. But one thing, did you walk away with this feeling, Tony, that one thing that seems to be clear is that Daniel did not rape Hannah? That was the, I was just going to say that's the one thing we walk away from that scene with, with a like a sturdy piece of new information that Daniel did not rape Hannah because he couldn't get an erection because they were tripping. I mean, he was obviously super high. They were all super high that night. Trey and George were up the cliff watching Daniel and Hannah naked, rolling around on a blanket. Then they saw Daniel run away with Hannah laughing at him. It's interesting... Um, 
that Trey says, you know, she was la- she wasn't laughing at you. She was laughing because we were high and everything was funny. Everything was funny to her that night. Um, but okay, so he says that with a great deal of confidence, Trey does. But then there's other like the way Trey recounts that night, there are some discrepancies. And Daniel even calls him out on it because Trey says, oh, yeah, after you ran away, Hannah told me that you didn't have sex with her. And then he goes on to talk about watching it happen. Daniel says, wait, did you see it happen or did she tell you it happened? You know, that's how it happened. And yeah, he has some slip ups. Trey does. Both. Yeah, both. And then he says, you were then we went down to see Hannah and messed around with her. And you were up on the cliff watching us. And Daniel says, wait, I thought you said I ran away. Oh, no, you were standing up on the top watching us. So Daniel, even in his totally inebriated state, is, um, is, is pointing out these discrepancies in Trey's story. And it does make you, you know, Trey is not a perfectly reliable narrator of what happened that <laughs> night. And then there's... no. I mean, then there's the, the then there's the, the the craziness that they're doing all this in George's house in Florida. It's so and bizarre, we, and we know George is dead; that he committed suicide, and then that Trey floated him down his body down the river. And Daniel seems to know George is gone because he says at one point George is not coming back, and That's Trey right. says, "I'll I'll bet you five bucks you're right." So, yeah, dude, and, what a scene! The whole that whole sequence, the build up to it for me, it was kind of like a bait and switch for me because I watched the development of the episode. Daniel goes to Trey's house, which the the interactions there are again just kind of laughable, especially Trey's. I mean, Sean Bridger is just great in this. Episode. Oh my gosh! Incredible! Incredible! But there's this weird moment where he packs a bag with all of the evidence of Trey's, I mean, of of George's suicide and his, uh, you know, guilt in hiding the body or disposing of the body. And he buys this beer and he's encouraging Mm -hmm. Daniel to take a drink, take a drink, take a drink. And I thought, man, when they get to George's, he's going to somehow set him up or frame him for George's murder, disappearance, whatever. But then he goes right along with him in this, like you said, alcohol, drug-fueled rager, you know, um, and this exploration of the past. And almost like he's teasing Daniel. It's almost like he knows what happened, but he's not even willing to tell Daniel. And like in this moment so far, it feels like Trey is the only person who holds the key to Daniel's future because we see what that future is, right? Between the DA and John, when she offers him a plea deal, which is just, it's mind boggling that she would think he would take that. He's already spent 18 years. He's going to go back and do 10 (sighs) more. He's going to go back and do 10 more. You know, Amantha's like F that. She literally says F that, you know. Yeah, I I know, I know. But but 
John Stern, the defense attorney, he does oh, not. Oh, he's thinking about it. You know, at first he's, like, he's thinking he's about like, it, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's thinking about it. Now it is his. He is he is uh, required as an attorney to share that uh, plea bargain offer with his client, you know, but how he, he hasn't gotten up by, by the time the episode Daniel's ends, not picking he's up not the yet, phone. <laughs> right, he's not gotten a hold of Daniel. So we don't know how Daniel responds. I can't imagine that Daniel, um, thinks that he, you know, is open to the idea that he would go back to prison for 10 years and get out when he was, you know, 47 or 48. But here's the hey. other thing, man. Here's the other thing. It's like, we. W- this is the other big reveal from this episode. Daniel truly does not remember that night. He doesn't remember what happened. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a good point. And so he doesn't even know if he's innocent. And that's the first that we've heard of that. Yeah, he has theories. no recollection that he didn't rape her or have sex with Hannah. And he has no recollection of... The murder. Now, here's what's interesting on that deal. First of all, there is this um, repeated theme in that intense scene in George's house where Trey is like, look, dude, she is not, Hannah was not a good person. You know, Hannah slept with a ton of guys. Hannah was, you know, she was not special. And Daniel's like, Shut up. She was special. She was special. And you wonder if Daniel really thought that when he was a teenage boy or if he in some ways romanticized Hannah during his 18 and a half years on death row and built her up that, you know, she really was uh, a wonderful person. I, I don't know, but it's man, it's some nat- like Jer- you know. I mean, Trey says, you know, I popped her cherry. Oh, what that was after her uncle. I was the first non-family member at eight, when she was thirteen. Oh, it's brutal. And, it's brutal. Yeah, and he's just like laughing about it, and he's hammered. It's it's yeah. It's such a weird kind of not so subtle portrayal of the kind of hypocrisy of of sexuality, right? You know, yeah. Hannah can and bl- sleep with all these guys, fool around with all these guys, and she's a slut. But Trey admits Blaming, to letting George yeah, give him, yeah, yeah. like, oral sex, and that's just nothing, you know? And that he sleeps with her when she's 13, or I don't know how he rapes her at 13. Yeah. Like, I don't, you know, right. it's, uh, it's just that weird thing. But looking at, um, you know, Daniel not knowing what's going to, what, what happened that night, Trey seemingly knowing knowing what happened that night. Um, but Amantha does say, Amantha does tell John, they're offering you this deal because they don't think they can get a conviction at a trial. I mean, that's one I, way to read it. And, and that, yeah. uh, the, the DA, uh, Sandra Person, the DA, she, you know, obviously sells, uh, sells John Stern hard on the fact that that she do, she does think she'll get a conviction, but why is she offering a plea deal when obviously the senator is going to give her an earful and make her life miserable if she does that? And probably a lot of the people in the town, if she doesn't go for another conviction um, and, a, and another uh, death sentence, 
So that's interesting point you're making there, Tony, about positioning her. She she kind of positioning herself in between Daniel and the town where yeah. she's not sympathetic to Daniel, but she's like, maybe I flip the town a bird, you know, or certainly the senator. He's no friend of hers. The, the show hasn't focused on the case, on the merits of the case at the, to this point, like so many um, shows and movies that have to do with, you know, cases like this, they spend a lot. lot of time on the case. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know <laughs> a ton about the case, but just from our cursory passing knowledge of the case, it does seem like the prosecution's case is not extremely strong because they there's DNA evidence showing that um, it, it wasn't Daniel's semen inside of Hannah. And it also, you know, although he confessed, he was... Well, he was obviously under the influence of drugs, and he was 16 years old when he confessed. So you would think that would be somewhat shaky. George, one of the witnesses who obviously testified against Daniel in the first trial, is gone. And, you know, they can't find him, and we know that he's dead. And how how, how good of a witness is Trey? I mean, obviously, as you've already alluded to, if they put Trey on the stand and he's like, you guys, uh, Daniel did not have sex with Hannah that night. I saw the whole thing. He couldn't get an erection. She laughed at him. He ran away. He never had sex with her that night. Now, if, if the rape goes away as part of the rape and murder conviction, that's going to undermine the murder conviction. But, <laughs> but Trey, isn't it interesting, you know, before, well, I guess before and after Daniel throws him up against the wall, he's like, wait, did George do it? I mean, I didn't do it because I had no motive. Did George do it? No, you must have done it, Daniel. You must have done it after we left. You must have gone back down to her on the riverbank and killed her. And you just can't, Trey is so wily. You don't know, maybe he did do it. You know, I don't, What he is really messing with Daniel at that point. Wait till wait till the senator gets his hooks into Trey. Oh yeah. That dude doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> Speaking of the senator, Teddy Jr. stands up to the senator. Teddy Jr. What a roller coaster of a character. Yeah. Last yeah. week couldn't go lower. This week couldn't go higher. And that that again, Clay Crawford, that exchange with the senator, when he says it will tear my family apart. Like Teddy would be out on his ass. Teddy Jr. He would be mm -hmm. out on his ass and it would it, it would it wouldn't tear his family apart. It would kill Janet. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Teddy makes that decision and you wonder what all is wrapped up in it. Obviously, <laughs> you know, if he jeopardizes his relationship with his stepmom, he also jeopardizes his job since she owns the tire store. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, you know, and we don't, um, I don't know. Do we know if Ted senior was a widower when he married Janet? Like it feels like it. Teddy calls Janet mom. So this is uh, my point is, if he if there's a rift in his relationship with Janet, that means that his unborn child will not get to, you know, have a good relationship with 
their grandmother. So yeah. he has multiple reasons for changing his story, but let's just say that he's got to feel terribly terribly betrayed by Sheriff Carl. I mean for all the Yo, people for yeah. any, for, for yeah. anyone for Sheriff Carl to tell that story about the coffee grounds in the bunghole too to to tell it to the senator it just shows how weak weak need the sheriff really is. That like, was really it, frustrating. Oh. Uh, yeah. Hey, listen, you know, we can talk about Teddy rising to the occasion. Uh, two things. Didn't you love the shot when the camera pans down facing Teddy and the senator is on one side and the sheriff is on the other when Teddy's thinking about how he's going to respond to the senator? I thought that was just such a nice touch in, in terms of the camera work and direction. But interesting th- two interesting things have happened in the last couple of episodes, and sp- one in this one and one that kind of stretches across this episode and last week. This the this episode opens with this weird dream sequence. We could come back to this or a drug fueled vision, and then we cut to Teddy and Tawny in the bedroom, and there's this very sweet moment between them, and we see Tawny mm-hmm. open up to Teddy Junior emotionally, physically, and she seems to be comfortable with him touching her. You know, she's not pulling yeah. away. He's expressing what seems to be sincere love and attraction and care for her and their child. So there's that. And then earlier in the episode, before the Senator comes into the shop, Amantha comes in with her coworker. They're both high. And there's this really sweet exchange between Amantha. And it seems like Teddy Jr. is really moved by her good nature, even though he knows that she's high and appreciates this little moment of connection where they, they're like two children raiding. You can see her having gone in that store hundreds of times before when her dad worked there getting stealing a snack out of the machine. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a fa- that's a family moment there that Teddy is now part of. And I think those are the fuel for his decision, in part, to basically say no to the senator, that I'm not going to play that game. Because I think he's feeling like potentially drawn further into that family and that he knows that if he goes and does that, that that all of that falls apart. And to your point about his child, he wouldn't have a relationship with his child. That child wouldn't have potential have a relationship with any of that extended family. Um, So, but I thought those were nice touches, the, and especially the, the the sequence of Amantha connecting with her coworker and seeing a little bit of, a little looseness there, you know, because she was. Yeah, you're right. That's been, true. I mean, she's got to get stoned. The series. Yeah, she's got to get stoned in order to kind of lighten up and enjoy herself a little bit and giggle and laugh. And we yeah. really don't see her like that. Yeah. Um, and then it's funny, you know, she goes back home to her apartment. There's John Stern surprised. She's surprised to see him because he stayed in town, skipped his flight in order to talk about this uh, plea deal possibility with Daniel and you know she hears the news and immediately says you know what a buzzkill and sobers up because it's bad news for her I don't know what good I guess good news for her would be that the DA is just dropping the case that's the only good news I mean yeah because but that's just not going to happen because 
they're not going to let a murder of a young girl, a rape and murder of a young girl go without getting a conviction from somebody. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. if they're not going to go back after Daniel, they're going to have to figure out who they would who they would go after for that. It's yeah. Yeah, I just I Tony, you seemed eager to talk about the opening sequence, which, like I said, seemed to be a dream or a drug vision, drug fueled vision. What 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 was your takeaway from that? Well, I think it must. I, I'm guessing it was Daniel's mushrooms ha- hallucination that you know at the, the the previous episode ended with him taking a couple mushrooms, and I think. Well, first of all, I, I love that very sa- fame. There's that very famous song that's like, is that all there is that's playing in the background that I don't know if you know of that song, but um, I've known that song and heard it for many years. It's a Libra and Stoller song, but uh, it's so wild, I think. I just I just find <laughs> I just find the character of Trey whether it's actual or a hallucination of Trey to be a fascinating character. I'm so compelled by him. Um you know George comes up and George walks up to them in this vision or hallucination Trey says, "Uh-oh, here comes trouble." And then says, "Cat's got his tongue." Um, and the song is about death. You know, that's really what the song is that all there is is about. It's rare. You see, always appreciate, always appreciate seeing a character dipping. Well, I love that too. We don't get enough of that. I love a good Southern. I love a good Southern boy. Who's got a dip in and spitting out tobacco juice and drinking and, and drinking while drinking while he does it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just one for the road, you know? Right. Um, how, Another. Let's go back to the where we started. Maybe as we wrap this episode up, yeah. I can't remember if it was it was the last word said in the episode. And I guess we could go back and look. But Trey tells Daniel, "I know you," and it's just such a a fascinating yeah. juxtaposition to where we've heard something like that before um, with Kerwin. Uh, kind of. He not only says, Kerwin. "I know you," he says. You are who you are, okay? It's forever. It's like being an yeah. Indian or something. I know you. Now you know you if you ever really forgot. Yeah. but And so what does that mean? What is he saying there? Like, now you know you didn't rape her? But he also said, you know, it's like you're also not... A, it, there seems to be imp- the implication that you're not a good guy. I think, I think it's because... And we've seen this before... We see it when he choked out Teddy. Uh, We've seen it a few different times that Daniel does have a real problem with rage and he will snap. And the way he, you know, Trey is, Trey is baiting him, baiting him, baiting him. And then he snaps, throws Trey up against the wall, gets down on top of him. And whereas you, you might think Trey would be scared. Trey just starts laughing at him. Like who does that? Who throws a guy like what middle-aged guys throw each other up against the wall? Like, this is who you are. You have yeah. rage and anger, and I know it, and you know it. And what's what's really layered about that in the episode is that's the argument that the sh- that the senator makes to Teddy Jr. Right? He's yeah, really that's right. 
painting Daniel as a monster when he says, think about your family, think about your mother. And then it's like, think about your wife. And boy, that that really almost sends Teddy off the edge and and agreeing to kind of make that public right to press charges against Daniel. But then, yeah, as we've already talked about, he he changes course and kind of reins that in. But that's certainly the narrative that the senators using that they would probably use in any sort of defense uh, moving forward or in their in their prosecution. And obviously, that's what Trey is saying. And of course, we as the viewers are watching this. That's one of the central themes and questions of the series is who is Daniel Holden? Is he this monster or is he someone who was at the wrong place at the wrong time, wrongfully convicted and wrongfully imprisoned for all these years? And it seems to be that at this point, the question is still in the air. That's still what we're exploring as as viewers. And then that the creators were were wrestling with in the in the process of making the show. Well, before we go back to Teddy Jr., one little spiritual theme we might highlight is that when he's, you know, he's really, he, he opens the episode shaving. He has this very intimate moment with Tawny and then it looks like they're going to have a role in the hay and right about that. He says, I'm so happy. And he really is like, I'm so happy. She says me too. Or he, and he says, you know, I really love you. And her response isn't, you know, I really love you. Her response is, I know you do, Teddy. And then he says, God's will, right? And you never quite know if if Teddy... How do I say this without being, like, stereotyping a lot of guys in the South? But I think there are a lot of guys in the South. I think there are a lot of guys in general whose wives go to evangelical churches and the wives are true believers and the guys go along in spite of their doubts and would probably rather be golfing than in the church service. And I've just gotten that impression that that was Teddy. And you don't know if he's saying God's will right in order to, because he really believes it, or if he's saying it because he wants to kind of get his hooks into Tawny a little bit or use the language she understands for, you know, the, the forthcoming birth of their child. Anyway, I just thought that was a little interesting, you know, little, little theological spiritual statement by him. Hey, Tony, I think you're more right than, you know, I, I think that's a really good point. And, and catching that I grew up at, for about 13 years in a small country church, rural church in Mississippi, Baptist, before I moved to the the first Baptist church of the town I grew up in, right, which is was a bigger church, a wealthier church, and all that. But that sense of of men who kind of you know go along to get along, uh, I I think you're completely right, and I don't know that that's a stereotype. I think that is a a southern thing. I can't speak to other communities. I didn't grow up there, other parts of the country. But yeah, I mean, it, you would just get the sense that that a lot of the guys in church on a Sunday morning would have much rather been in the deer stand or out fishing. And so for for Teddy Jr. to use that language, I think he's I think he's just appeasing Tawny. But I think it reflects uh, an emotional intelligence that may not be characteristic of his peers um, when he can at least say that. You know, and it 
and it moves it moves tawny right i mean oh yeah i could be <laughs> crass about it i could be crass about it but it moves her it rolls you know? her right over on her back when she when does. He, he says he that. Knows. I mean, it's he knows, right? That's that's uh, foreplay for Tawny. Any mention yeah. of God, <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I think that's an interesting thing to to look at him and his spirituality and and to, and Tony. I know, and 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 probably some of our listeners are well aware of your work in in through with nature and people who who make their lives in those spaces. You know, they're there's not, at least growing up, it was like an either or, right? Yeah, it, right. What would be more interesting would to, to all of these men that I'm thinking about and referencing in my childhood, they would have never heard the value, for lack of a better word, the spiritual value of, of that work, right, of being yeah. out in nature. And that kind of affirmation and validation of that, I don't want to be in church. I want to be outdoors. That's deeply spiritual. And that's something that your work is, is intersecting with. And um, yeah, it's, it's not really on display here in the, in the series, but this, when you brought that up, I didn't really think about it watching the episode, but when you brought that up, I immediately thought about some of these people in my childhood and how um, they would really be great guests on your other podcast. Hey, Ryan, before we go, you and I, we, uh, you know, hopefully this, you know, it won't be the high point of our, of our television careers, but we did to this point, the high point of our television careers was working in a writer's room for a Hulu show for a week, which was super fun. And one of my vivid memories of that is that at the beginning of each day, as we sit down, um, they passed around menus, you know, and, and we, and then one of the, one of the <laughs> showrunners is, do you know where I'm going with this? No. What are you doing? Oh, dude. Do you remember one of the places that we ordered from for lunch? One of the days, it was always a big deal. Like, where would we be getting lunch? Because it's always catered in and you know, all the, you never buy a meal when you're in those writer's rooms, like all the foods provided. Um, do you remember when we ordered food from squirrel? Remember that day? Yeah, that was uh, yeah in my neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, it might have been the first time it? I'd ever actually heard uh, of avocado toast because avocado yeah. toast had not yet really made yeah. it to Minnesota. You, you, you thought you were getting squirrel? Okay, I was hoping we'd. And then there were a lot of jokes because I was like, I've actually eaten squirrel, you know, like legit squirrel. Okay, one of the employees at Squirrel posted a photo on Twitter of a of squirrel jam like it, the in the back in the kitchen the big uh the big like um you know industrial sized bucket of squirrel jam covered with mold <laughs> covered with mold and this employee said the the um the employees were told to just scrape the mold off and keep serving the jam on their famous you know $12 jam and toast or whatever no um, oh yeah so then squirrel posts about we don't use commercial pectin sweeteners stabilizers so there's a more natural fruit forward product and it's susceptible to mold 
the same type of mold that grows on charcuterie and cheese and whatever. People are losing their shit from this, this photo of squirrel. This like super bougie Hollywood LA place that serves yeah. a $16 avocado toast that they serve moldy jam. <laughs> so I'm just so you so gotta just, look that up. All this right. This is not related. This is not related to rectify at all, right? It's just you know, you're you're in a room and you're ordering food from a place that has moldy jam. <laughs> just yeah, so dude. Look it up. Look yeah, it up. It's just one up. My wife, Amy loves that restaurant. And oh, I've always dude. Been a suspicious, Tony. Tony, I've always been a little suspicious. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm gonna send you the image right now.